Hi there, I'm Andy Lemasugo and welcome to the first installment of the African Tech Conversation series. It's produced by the same team that brings you the African Tech Roundup every Monday. And for our very first chat, we were lucky enough to catch up with Trevor Wolf. Now, Trevor is the managing director of a crowdsourcing startup called Springleap that's making some waves. In the conversation I had with him, he explained how Springleap has gone from selling t-shirts to becoming a leading crowdsourcing company by perfecting the art of the pivot. He was also kind enough to share some of his personal experiences, notably some of his professional failures, and more importantly, how his past mistakes have made him a better entrepreneur. So without any further ado, here it is. Right, Trevor Wolf, MD of Springleap, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Good to be here. Let's start from the beginning. We want to know a little bit about you and and what got you involved in tech and becoming an entrepreneur. So I actually started out of college in the finance world. Um, I came out doing consulting to big financial firms, big banks, big asset management companies, teaching them how to get into the digital world. So I was with a consultancy, basically just teaching these 100-year-old companies how to talk to consumers online, acquire consumers online, service consumers online, uh, allow consumers to be self-empowering, uh, building their own financial portfolios online. Um, so that was kind of my first taste of the, the digital world as um, put into the business context. Um, so I didn't actually jump right into startups after that. I actually worked for WPP for seven, eight years after that in their research and analytics department. Uh, if, you, if your listeners don't know, WPP is the world's largest ad agency holding company. They have about 160,000 employees worldwide. Yeah, they're a monster. I, I've actually worked for one of their subsidiaries in, in South Africa, TNS Research Service. Of course, I started at TNS. Um, TNS was an independent company with 17,000 employees and was gobbled up by WPP um, while I was there. So I went through that acquisition. Um, but yeah, they're, they're also gobbling up all the agencies in South Africa as well. So I wouldn't say I was in the startup world. I was a more of a, a suit and tie kind of guy for seven, eight years. But I did get involved in a lot of product innovation at, uh, at WPP and was nominated to be part of these product teams where our mission was to bring products to market very quickly. So I got to see how a large organization does entrepreneurial activity. Um, I think that's what sparked my interest. Um, I ended up launching a business unit with a new CEO, got f- about 90 million rand in financing from WPP to build this business unit. And uh, two years later, we crashed it. <laughs> oh my word. So I'm following your story and I'm thinking, wow, here's Jonas swallowed by this amazing whale by the sounds of it. <laughs> and you're pretty happy inside this whale and you grow and you, you know, this, I don't know how far this analogy is going to stretch, but, um, but anyway, so you grow inside this huge organization, which got clearly got entrepreneurial spirit. They trust you with something awesome and you ruin it yeah it was a pretty heartbreaking lesson i I think um your listeners will appreciate the biggest thing we did wrong was we locked ourselves in a room for a year and built products without talking to customers that was mistake number one we thought that we were building something that everyone was going to buy that the market wanted uh, which was basically a video analytics to help track online video viewing and add uh, occurrence data. And uh, so when we launched it and we found no one was very interested, we had to kind of scramble and try to educate the market why they need this. But uh, I think it was a little too late, um, too little too late. So Almost sounded like you're going head to head with YouTube and Vimeo somehow. Uh, we got rights to monitor um, all of YouTube's traffic data, all of Hulu's traffic data, um, and all of the advertising occurrence on those platforms. But no one cared. 
no one cared because online video was still TV shrunk. You know, all the brands were just putting their TV commercials, squeezing them into a tiny box on the on the web page. So no one was really caring about unique measurement or cared that they could target better or track better or tie to purchasing activity. That just wasn't a big pain point in the market. It was a very sexy product, but not a very useful product at the time. What sort of insights do you think you could have uh, gained by by checking with the market first, and how would it have affected the, the product you eventually developed in that in the, in in that business? Yeah, I think one of the, the mistakes we made is we um, became our own hype machine. So we saw video viewing online was growing at about forty percent year over year, which is a gigantic growth segment. Uh, advertising dollars was following that growth forty percent, um, but we never stepped out and said this is still only one. One hundredth of the total advertising spend, or one one hundredth of the total media consumption. So we didn't put it into a larger context that ninety nine percent of dollars spent by brands or by media companies was still TV, billboards, radio, newspapers. The dynamics were changing, but we were just a little, maybe a couple of years too early. Um, and so when we presented to clients, we'd always say, "Is this look cool?" Uh, but never took it a step farther. Like, um, would you pay for this? And you know, what, what does they say? If a client says that looks interesting, it's a no. If they say yes, it's a maybe. And if they say here's five dollars, then it's a yes. So um, we never got that five dollars. Wow, sure. So we're only a few minutes into the interview, and <laughs> already we're sort of navigating the graveyard of your <laughs> of your of your past. Is there more? Yeah, there's more. Um, so we'll come to it. I want to dial back a little bit to find out uh, where you grew up. Where, where did you Where did you go to school? Where did you come up? Um, you obviously have an accent that doesn't sound very local. Uh, where did you grow up, and what influenced you growing up? I grew up in the cowboy country of the United States um, in a state called New Mexico, which is between Arizona and Texas. Uh, lots of ranches. I grew up in a small little village of goat farmers. Um, you got goats in, in in the states? Yeah, we don't eat much of them. They're more for just the visual, you know, the landscape. I need to hook you up, bro. Yeah, uh, I need to. Um, but we have these mountains called the Sandia Mountains that border Albuquerque, where I grew up. As a kid, I always thought that the other side of the mountains was the other side of the world. I thought Asia was on the other side of the mountains. So I think I always had an eye for international experience. Um, New York was my first big jump from cowboy country. So I went to college uh, at Hofstra University in, in New York, and I studied international business. And I think I picked that degree more for the international than the business aspect. Um, you know, a year into studies, I was yearning to get abroad, and so I ended up spending a year and a half in Mexico, the country, uh, studying at their, their tech and business school down there for a year and a half. And that was my first kind of immersion into a different culture where I lose my footing and have to start from fresh, uh, understanding the country and the people. Um, and I spent my last semester in Spain, actually, kind of furthering my Spanish skills and also just kind of um, my cap to my, my education. Cool. Okay. So now, you know, back to, you know, closer to the present, at least. So, and, and the story you told. So WPP trusts you with a boatload to start an amazing division. You're making sexy products. 
that no one wants to buy. That fails. What next? I got recruited to lead international expansion for a firm called Gerson Learman Group. And this is probably one of the most unknown firms, one of the largest unknown firms um, in the research world. About a thousand employees and they do about 50 billion rand a year in revenue. What's that in US? Is that like 5 billion US? Yeah, I'm still using the 10 to 1 even though the rand is a little bit weaker these days. Yeah, and a lot of our listeners are listening everywhere and they're like, what the heck are rands? Apologies, yeah, about 5 billion. Um, it's essentially a network of 400,000 professionals. So these are former CEOs, former diplomats, lawyers, doctors, um, anyone with an expertise in a specific field. This firm match makes, uh, mat- plays matchmaker to usually financial firms that are looking to talk to experts. So you're a stock trader on, on the stock, New York Stock Exchange or the Johannesburg Stock Exchange and you want to buy into a retail fast food chain. Um, this company will pair you up with 40 people that used to run chains in the market you're talking to and you just chat with them over the phone to get their professional feedback before you make your million-dollar uh, bet. And everyone pays to be part of this network? Uh, the professionals get paid by the clients, and then the clients pay uh, Gerson Lima Group a big, uh, big annual fee. That was my first experience into kind of like the marketplace mechanics of a business where it's the Gerson Learman Group has to play mediator between the, 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 the supply, which is the professionals, and the demand, which is the financial firms. Um, so I was leading their North American Financial Service Marketing Department. Um, so working with private equity, VC, investment banking, um, debt financing, um, and even angel investors uh, to kind of match make them with with um, with skills and teaching them how to use professional learning in different situations. About a year into that, um, so this was a privately financed venture-backed capital um, firm itself, and they were doing some restructuring, and they chopped uh, about 100 people, and uh, my entire department was part of that um, that slice. That, that was, We were the ones that got our heads cut off. How much of this is happening to you? And how much of this is you pursuing these opportunities? So WPP, you know, sort of took over a firm you worked for and you got involved with stuff in there. So that kind of sounded like, it's, it kind of sounds like that, that happened to you. It, it wasn't, you know, and then the next thing was that you chasing it. Did you know what you wanted to do next or did the opportunity avail itself? Were you headhunted? I was headhunted. So the Gerson Learman opportunity I took. As a more interesting high risk, high upside potential, um, I had a couple job offers from AOL and Moody's Analytics and a few other firms that could have gave me a very stable career, I think. But the Gerson Learman opportunity, where it was um, my my duties would be growth and not just maintaining the ship, I think that was what was more appealing. And so I I kind of put myself in the situation where I knew that um, there was risk involved. And even with WPP, the business unit that I, that we started, I could have just said no to that opportunity and stuck with my normal role and um, had a very long and prosperous career there. But I don't think it would have been as rewarding as taking those those risks. Okay, so there's a definite intentionality around you pursuing things that will grow you or that will put you in an, a position where you can, you know, um, exercise passions and that kind of thing. Yeah, I think... Uh, one of the beauties about joining a risky operation is that the person hiring you or the person that you're working with is going to give you more responsibilities than you were doing currently. So um, at each stage, one of the most appealing things was me that I was going to get a whole new set of skills by taking that risk, by taking that new role. And, and I think that that was extremely appealing. Like a millennial generation, we don't want to just crank out numbers and print stuff from a fax machine. We want all the responsibility. We want all the insight from the company. Um, and so I was definitely a stubborn millennial. Very achievement oriented. I can relate to that. 
Okay, so 100 people under you um, in a division you ran lose their jobs. Can't be very affirming. What did you do next? So this is the, the part where I got my first authentic startup taste. So a friend at... Um, a friend of mine was a, a consultant, advisor, and associate at Techstars, which is New York's largest accelerator program. And he was uh, mentoring a bunch of startups. And one of them was a company called MoveLine, who was looking for a director of marketing. And so I uh, interviewed with Kelly and Fred. It was just a four-person team right out of the Techstars program. They just got funding from Chris Saka, you know, um, um, John Frankel from FFC, uh, Metamorphic, a uh, couple big dogs in the, in the funding round, funding world in the United States. And they had a very sexy product. And so I interviewed with them and just like the passion of these two founders was contagious. You know, I sat in there and, you know, I didn't see stability in my job. Um, I didn't see you know, uh, a clear path forward. Um, but I did see passion and that this would be one of the most fascinating rides of my career so far. So I said yes immediately um, as the fourth person and was basically in charge of establishing the marketing function of MoveLine, which is a B2C uh, moving technology that lets people that are moving long distance um, quickly take a video of what's in their house, get an online inventory of everything in their house, and then three to five guaranteed quotes from moving providers all within, you know, within, a, within a day. What year are we talking here? This was two years ago. So this was not, not so long ago. Um, or three years ago is when I started MoveLine. You pack a lot of living into into years because, like, you think someone's talking about like a, a career spanning like two or three decades or something. No, this is ten years of jam packed, um, lots of mobility. You know, I spent a long time at, at Cantar, but then um, these startup stints tend to be a little bit shorter. So, sorry, where? At what's that? You spent a lot of time at at Cantar, which is the the business unit that WPP owns. That's their research and analytics department. Gotcha. They're the ones that own uh, TNS and Miller Brown and Added Value and all those. Right. Okay. So MoveLine was two years ago. Uh, what happened then? So MoveLine, we experienced extremely rapid growth. Um, we had the the funding to experiment with a lot of marketing models and customer acquisition. So my first six months were a lot of experimentation, trying with real-time ad buying, mobile targeting, direct mail, behavioral targeting, um, every kind of uh, advertising uh, channel. We were testing those. And I spent a lot of time on um, consumer acquisition costs and lifetime value, all those metrics that uh, that marketers are, are getting really accustomed to using now to monitor. And so we went from like a few customers a month to about Two or three hundred thousand revenue uh, U.S. a month very quickly, and went from about four people to about one hundred and fifty people very quickly. We also took on investment from Tony Shea, the CEO of Zappos.com, and um, in exchange, it's not like a explicit request, but he does encourage anyone that he invests in to move to downtown Las Vegas, uh, where he's trying to build a startup economy out there. So we moved our company out there. And for the next five months, I was commuting from New York to Las Vegas every single week. Um, and that, that got a bit old. I've seen what he's trying to do down there. Um, uh, what essentially gentrify what, what parts of the city that, um, we don't often see on television, certainly not in the Ocean's 11, 12, and 15 movies or whatever. So that got old very quickly. I would have thought that was really exciting. 
I grew up in the Southwest, so and I uh, wasn't a big fan of Vegas to start with. It's a fun place for a weekend, but it wasn't right culturally for me. And I also had a partner in New York that um, had an amazing career going for her. And so I wasn't ready to, to leave her. We were looking at housing out there. We were on the verge of moving uh, out to Las Vegas. She was going to sacrifice her job for, for, this, for the startup that I was working for, MoveLine. But uh, I guess something happened at the same time, which is her firm offered her a job in Johannesburg. Uh, so we were kind of pitted against uh, Johannesburg versus Las Vegas. A casino in the desert versus, <laughs> come on, the city of gold? Yeah, Las Vegas is the city of fake gold. Johannesburg is the real gold. Holla! We, we picked the winner. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, we, um, we also explored other countries, too. So we were looking at Malaysia, London, and Brazil, and uh, Amsterdam in the Netherlands. And still, we, Johannesburg was the most appealing uh, the vibe here, the energy here, the startup scene for me, um, it, it just all made sense. And um, so we pulled the trigger on Johannesburg. And you left uh, not knowing what you'd be doing here, moved in faith, basically? Yeah, correct. Um, we knew that um, there's a lot of agency uh, landscape here, and I could probably find a job with one of the big ad agencies. Um, so we had that fallback, and I'd spoken to a lot of them before we got out here. Uh, but on my second day here, actually, I was connected to the Spring Leap guys, and we started chatting for a while. So it was literally my second day here, a coincidental meeting, uh, I think... One of them had posted on Facebook and uh, that they're looking for some support, early team members. And my friend saw it and sent it to me and made the connection and just kind of a random collision. No way. So what converse, What was the conversation like when you met these guys? I mean, we'll, t- we'll talk about what, you know, what Spring Leap was up to when you met and how it's since pivoted. But yeah, so what was the conversation? You meet these guys and you guys go, hey, what's up, and Yeah, I think they were originally looking for... A salesperson. That's like what the job offer was. I had no sales experience. I've managed sales teams and, uh, and, you know, the marketing discipline works very closely with sales, but I'd never been a salesperson. But I think what I saw in them is that they have this community, engaged community. Uh, for me, that, you know, in the, the, I forgot to mention in MoveLine, that's a, a marketplace model as well. You're matching consumers and uh, independent movers with each other. So I saw this engaged community of creatives from Springly as one side of a business model. And that for me was extremely appealing. I knew that they're, you know, they might not have the right product, but they have a extremely valuable asset in that. I think what they saw in me was ad tech experience, digital marketing experience, and kind of hustle experience as well. So I, I think it was a nice match. Okay, so what were they doing? They were essentially selling t-shirts? Yeah, they had just come out of a phase. I mean, the original model was allow designers from the agencies or freelancers to submit t-shirt designs. They all vote on them. And, you know, after work on the weekend, they'd pick a winner. It'd go on on the e-commerce store. And uh, we even inked a few deals or Spring Leap inked a few deals with uh, Big Blue and a couple other retail outlets. Uh, So that was original business model. It was more of a, a a community rather than a business, though. You know, it was it was a it was a very engaged community, um, and it attracted a lot of high caliber artists and designers from the best agencies around the country. I hear a butt coming up, but it wasn't making a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> so we were kind of, I think it was in a bit of a patient stage where it was kind of plateaued. Uh, they're making enough revenue to cover themselves and cover the costs. 
and pay salary and rent, but there was no growth. There's no uh, spike. So they tried to adapt that model to any brand or agency looking for design. So uh, we did some cool stuff with uh, Volkswagen and Samsung, Marmite, where they got, you know, 40, 50 submissions of designs from different creative minds around the country. Again, the, they all vote, uh, the public can vote on it, engage with a very cool, sexy model. How different to say what uh, a company like 99designs does? We are premium. So this, first of all, these are all premium. It's not um, people that are working for a $100 prize pool. These these prize pools are about 2500 minimum, uh, up to $5,000. So the, the big guns came out for these contests. And the second element is that there was a voting mechanism. So it's like the, you know, a brand like Samsung designing in the public instead of just using it for the, the to get design. It's also the design is part of the, the engagement campaign. Uh, the ad agencies must have loved you and hated you at the same time. That's a beautiful way to put it. Um, either way, they never bought from us. <laughs> you for real? But did they? Did you at least get some of the big names um, allowing their talent to to, to participate? Yeah, so when, when talent from these agencies join our community, they're doing it on an independent basis. So we didn't really need permission from the agencies to get them as part of our network. But we did do some campaigns with them. So with, uh, with Ogilvy down in Cape Town, we did that Volkswagen campaign. With Machine, which was acquired by Publicis recently, we did the Marmite campaign. So it was very cool partnerships with agencies. But anytime you approach an agency and say, we can give your client 50 designs in one week for one single price, it's a very threatening proposition, even if, you know, the, the actual value is the campaign itself, not the output of the creative. The creative was good, but the, what we were pushing is that you, this is a great way to engage your community, you know, in the process. And uh, so we hired a sales team to hit the, hit the pavement and sell this product that we called Co-Create. Probably about 300 meetings with brands and agencies over the course of five or six months and almost zero sales. So there was something blocking uh, blocking this from being adopted by the market. And as any of your startup listeners will know, that means you haven't hit product market fit. Yeah, that's probably because the agencies hated you. The brands too. I mean, brands don't want to shake their relationship with the agencies too because there is something very transformative about having a creative partner that you can trust, rely on, share confidential information about your brand. And so I think a lot of brands... While we could have delivered very well or even better than a lot of agencies on that one creative campaign, gave them great new ideas or great design submissions. I think a lot of the brands were like, we don't want to harm our relationship with our agency because it's a very strong relationship. Um, they've served us well over the past few years. And um, so we, we hit a lot of friction even with brands. And there's a lot of intelligence uh, around our business and our brand DNA that we might not want to share with you. We don't I suppose also a matter of trust. Yeah, I mean, as much as we would have liked to have been long-term partners with brands directly, um, these campaigns are were one-off campaigns. So we never did anything again with Samsung. We never did anything again with Marmite. And so as as a relationship, we weren't building strong relationships. We impressed them uh, once off. We made money once off. But in terms of a relationship and sustainable business, um, it wasn't the right way to go. Was this also a matter of uh, maybe brands not understanding the value of that process uh, exposing them to to a community of people that will ultimately boost their brand and, uh, and build affinity in places that maybe they hadn't even thought about. You know, it's it's interesting. We went with all those. We tried different messaging. Um, we, you know, we literally put 
um, our average campaign was generating 3 million earned impressions that you don't have to pay for. So even in a financial sense, it makes a lot of sense to do a campaign like this. Crowdsourcing design and like public voting has been a phenomenon for a long time. Like every social media platform, every social media page in South Africa already is doing voting contests and, you know, giveaways. Uh, so they're already engaging with the crowd a little bit and we show them the value of this, this model. I think what we were facing is a lot of people um, in the brand and agency world are focused on excellence, not innovation right now. Where in America, you go with a new product, a sexy technology product in any market, whether that's hamburgers or high tech, and there's a market for you. You can find the early adopters that are willing to give experimental budget to try a test with you. In South Africa, a lot of the brand managers and uh, creative directors at agencies were just like, we are focused on getting our operations down, streamlined. We're focused on making sure that we're organized, measuring appropriately, just like the fundamentals of brand management. And it's not time for an innovative solution like this. And the agencies all trying to win lurries and <laughs> basically fill galleries with amazing advertising art, if you can even call it that. Yeah, there, I just don't think there was a strong enough pain that we were solving. You know, we were um, a, a nice to have, not a need to have at that point. And so uh, we started looking at different models. That's one for the graveyard. <laughs> okay. Well, perhaps a shallower grave. But um, so what next? So this is Spring Leap trying to make its way to commercial success. Again, a sexy proposition. Two parties that you think uh, need an amazing broker like you, you Spring Leap, was in this situation. Didn't work. What happened next? Well, we looked at what we had. And what we had was a community of 22,000 creatives. It's a gigantic community of very high-end creative minds. Um, again, by accident, because we started off as t-shirts, we had these executive creative directors at all the top agencies, all the best freelancers, um, and we had them across Africa. And so we basically turned our sales team into um, a discipline, what's called customer development. It's very um, Steve Blank in the United States is pioneering this this field of, of customer development for startups, which is don't sell at a, at a sales meeting, um, ask questions and do 80% listening and 20% talking and get them, get your clients to, to dive into what frustrates them at work, what they stay awake thinking about at night, where the biggest pain points are, and then say like if they had a solution, would they actually buy it? You know, it's, it's all good and fine if they're talking about frustrations, but if they're not willing to solve it, then there's no reason building a product to solve it. And things we heard immediately were, I don't understand this demographic in South Africa. I want a closer relationship with the black market, the Indian market. Surprisingly, the most common thing we heard when we talked to, say, Joburg agencies and brands was uh, Cape Town is a different country. We don't really understand it. Uh, actually, to this day, I walked into a meeting with a bunch of brand managers that were are responsible for marketing healthy lifestyle products. They had no idea what Africa Burn was. I don't know if you know what Africa Burn is, but it's a gigantic event down in Cape Town where half the city disappears, half the workforce disappears, and half of productivity of Cape Town disappears. And they go into a desert, listen to a lot of music, get very dusty and um, dresses hippies for a weekend but it's a very existential moment for a lot of Cape Tonians and well you lost even me there <laughs> it's the talk of the town for a long time 
and the fact that a lot of it's you know a two-hour flight and people in Joburg don't know about it um, just kind of illustrated that there was a empathy disconnect between demographics between regions and that is extremely amplified when you move north of Limpopo into different African countries you know a lot of these brand managers are tasked with launching products in Nigeria Kenya Ghana Angola Mozambique Namibia and what access do they have what empathy can they build for their consumers besides like purchase data you know we found those pain points and we started asking our clients like we have this network of professional creatives that work in those markets spend all their day thinking about the target demographics that you cannot understand through data alone what would you do with them would you like ask them questions would you actually send your campaigns to them to evaluate for relevancy and so we started those conversations and built two products basically using the creative mind as the the actual value add that we're, we're connecting with so how do you come to these epiphanies i'm trying to imagine what the boardroom at uh, you know at spring leap looks like um you guys are obviously assessing the successes you've you've done you've gone from you know selling t-shirts you've engaged created this amazing community of people you've tried to broker relationships between the ad agency market and and, and the large clients that didn't work and so what are, what are you doing on a week-to-week basis, like to lead to epiphanies like you just described? Well, actually, there's a there's an interesting theory in innovation or insights uh, called swirl theory, uh, which is the theory that you being exposed to unrelated disciplines or unrelated experiences will eventually compound into a better chance of having an epiphany. So the fact that I come from the past failures of marketplaces, the past failures of research world, I knew that there was a product structure we could do with like a survey mechanism. There was a product that we can build around trends because I had done them in previous experience with different, you know, with actual consumers, not creatives. But those experiences actually ended up lending some some epiphanies, if you will. So we knew that there was something that we can bring from the old research models into, into this new model. And the first thing we did was hire someone uh, smarter than than us to do that, which is a guy from Miller Brown who spent you know the past couple of years thinking about these research products and selling these research products to clients and delivering value through research to his clients. So we brought him into the boardroom first of all. That was our, our first big move, and then we we did a lot of testing. Like we didn't want to make the mistake of convincing ourselves that this new product evolution was the right thing until we heard from clients that it was the right thing until we got a few sales. So we built an MVP of a few different things and went and see if we, see if we could sell them um, and see if we could find the early adopters and, and we got proof of that and so we got early customers and that, that was like the catalyst for pushing along this path. And what's what does the structure look like in terms of um, you know your partners I'm assuming that you invested in the business? Yeah, there, there. We have one CEO who's in New York raising um, private capital in New York from from angels out there closing our seed in Series A, um, and then we have a research lead. And we have a community management team down in Cape Town. We have an operations team down in Cape Town. Um, and then we have a research team here in Joburg and then a sales team in both cities. Um, and we have a couple of sales guys in New York that are doing a little customer development there before we launch products there as well. So how are roles in that context evolving? And how do you keep that evolution from keeping people from being 
disoriented or beginning to to lose faith in in where you guys are taking the company and whether they see a future with the with the company or not the concept of a pivot in south africa is not completely um well known yet and so a lot of our employees come from traditional uh employer backgrounds and so walking them through that it's okay if we're taking risks it's okay if we make a few failures or missteps um it's okay if we're developing something that's a little bit unknown kind of convincing them of that uh, um, telling them that that's okay to just try things and get stuff wrong was a cultural thing that we had to implement within spring leap itself but the the biggest thing we had to make sure uh, of you know we had this ship in the middle of a lake that wasn't going anywhere um, we didn't want them to feel that we were just going in circles we wanted to make them feel like we we're headed for land and so we didn't want to just try one product fail try one product fail try one product fail because uh, then they think the boat's just circling. And so we, we had to make sure that the products we were actually building had potential to have traction. And so that's why we got something up and running, tried it with a few clients. And if they bought, if they would buy again, if they'd subscribe, then we knew that there was something worth pursuing aggressively here. So we didn't change the entire structure of the company until we knew that there was traction. And that was like a, one of the biggest things we could do. You basically hung on to certain revenue streams that would ensure like stability and you know didn't force you your your position or repositioning as it were. That's um, absolutely right. We actually still make about a million rand or two million rand a year in t-shirts. It's spun out um, SouthAfricanDesignMarketplace.com. Uh, SADesignMarketplace.com is an actual business unit now, uh, owned by Springley, but it's, it has its own staff, its own PNL. But that revenue helped us experiment. Um, we still did some of those co-create campaigns with Two Oceans, which is an awesome campaign. We're about to do one with South African National Blood Service. Was there someone who an art installation of like a pair of Ray Bans on the beach or something like that? No, there was. This one was um, Two Oceans Wine wanted to do wine cooler bags with in macro. So you buy two bottles, you get this really cool, um, uniquely designed wine cooler bag. Instead of just um, passing that off to their agency to get the design, they just said, let's actually put some some um, promotion around the fact that you can do this at Macro. So we had about 100 designs submitted from all over the world in about two weeks, which is insane. And it's just like, it's still online. You can see this beautiful, beautiful quality designs. I'm glad I asked because I was totally offbeat there. <laughs> I don't know where it is. It's... Um, uh, if you're not a wine drinker, then I guess... Uh, I'm, I'm definitely not. My wife and I are launching a premium grape juice brand, though. Fantastic. Is it? I'll, I'll look for it in stores then. Well, it's not going to be in retail initially, but uh, it's called the Tanda. And yeah, definitely not a drinker, but I am a drinker of grape juice. <laughs> we, uh, I grew up on, I don't know if you know what Manischewitz is, which is um, it's a, a very common wine that the um, Jewish community drinks. It's made from a Concord grape, and it's the most disgusting thing, but it's it's also somehow fantastic. So uh, I don't think I've had a premium grape uh, juice in a long time. Well, you better try ours when it comes out, and I'll definitely get you a bottle. Cool. I'll look forward to it. So, okay. So let's, um, let's talk about the fact that, um, your CEO is out in New York, uh, raising finance. You obviously have very big dreams because, and uh, as a company and dreams that, uh, wouldn't be sustained by, by sort of growing on the revenues you're creating right now. You guys are looking for a lot of money, uh, I'm assuming. And I want to know how much money you're looking for and what you want to do with it. So the seed round uh, that we're about to close, we're about 60 or 70% subscribed, is about 1 million US. 
And then we're looking uh, for a three to five million Series A. Uh, we have commitments for both rounds, um, but they're going to be simultaneous. So the the products that we're launching, we, the two that we ended up on, we, I know we haven't discussed them, are relevant in any market. One is called SenseCheck, is already a four billion US dollar industry. Um, the, my previous employer and our research leads previous employer are already dominating that market. But every continent in the world is buying this a service similar to what we've launched. And then the other one is these trend reports are also extremely relevant and become even more relevant as brands try to cross borders. So the reason why we're raising so much capital is so we can hit the ground running, um, build sales teams in each market, have a creative director almost in each market that's going to help us uh, curate the right minds from those markets to help us recruit creatives in those markets. So business development is going to be a core focus, but the other half of the money is going to be put into technology. So as a middleman between supply of, of creative minds and demand of brands and agencies, we have to actually add value outside of just the connection between the two. We can't just like pass a phone number to the brand of a creative. We're building all kinds of survey technologies, database technologies, um, homes where creatives can host a lot of their, their work that they've done payment methodologies we're paying out in you know 60 70 countries so the the operations to get that up and running um, so there's gonna be a high technology cost involved in a lot of this i was gonna ask how much of what you guys are doing is protectable um is is proprietary and how much emphasis you sort of answered that question by saying half the money you're raising is going to tech i assume it's proprietary tech yeah the, the there's three pieces of um three pieces of our business that we are focused on to protect the barrier to, to our entry. One is uh, community growth. So having the biggest, baddest community uh, as a priority. So we have identified about 900,000 creatives around the world um, that we want in our community. We have all their contact details, all their information. So 970,000 of them we haven't spoken to yet. So we are going to be aggressively onboarding them into our community, profiling them a little bit further, getting them onto our network. So that's one piece. And um, the other piece is the the research that we're doing. So every project that we're doing makes us stronger. And in, in research, they call it normative database. Um, so... You're able to say when you do a um, Nike research study, for instance, we'll be able to say, um, here are your scores for your research for your campaign um, against the industry average. You know, we've done you know 100 of these studies in the footwear industry before, and here's how you score against those. So the more research studies you do, the stronger you become as a researcher. So the market research companies are going to hate you. Like, what are they doing, do you think, in the in the light of everything you've just told me? Are they directly in competition with some of the ideas you've spoken about? Do you have them in your in your sights as, like, lazy incumbents you're going to take down? What's, what's the relationship between, in your mind, between a company like yours and what's out there? I don't, I won't answer all of that, but I will say that they themselves are hitting a wall when it comes to understanding the consumer just by asking the consumer what they think. Um, a lot of brands know that, that consumers are terrible at talking about like their connection with their iPhone. You know, they might say, um, I like it because it's sleek and it fits in my pocket. But in their mind, the consumer's affiliation, uh, consumer's connection with their iPhone is, uh, gives me power of a connection to the world. It brings, you know, multimedia visuals and aesthetics into my, uh, my daily life. It, um, connects me to my mom via video. And so there's a lot of stuff that the consumer mind can't articulate verbally. And so these 
research houses know that, and they're investing in technologies like biometrics, which is kind of watch your face reaction. They're investing in online panel monitoring to see what people actually do online and not just say. So they know that there there's a gap in their offerings right now. And they certainly don't have a community to speak of. No. Um, so they, they use... To tap. To tap. Um, and the thing about our community is they're creative. So they are consumers. They buy iPhones. They buy popcorn. They buy they go to movies. They buy cars. But they're professionals at, at bringing the right brain into the equation. They're very good at saying um, you know why they have a relationship or why the brands that they work on, have a, the target market has a relationship with the product, how they feel about creative campaigns and how they can be improved. Um, and so they're a different kind of community and we can call them professionals. I think that's the gap we're filling right now is professional insight into into markets and into campaign execution. And I imagine some of the research houses will get there as well. Personally, I feel they should be really afraid of what's coming. And uh, well, what I'm still trying to figure out is what does the community get out of it? I mean, uh, great, there's a lot of great work. I'm sure there's opportunities to network. Or is there, what are you providing that community? So you, you're talking about onboarding, you know, some of the leading, uh, you know, creatives out there. I'm hoping I'm, your, I'm on your list, by the way. You know, no pressure. Um, but what, what, are you, what are you offering people who come on board? So first of all, anyone that wants to join a network is able to. Springleap.com uh, slash join, I think, and you'll immediately be in, uh, included into our network. So get in there. Awesome. Um, but so, I sound so needy. We want you. We want needy. We want, uh, we want your spirit in there. <laughs> okay, cool. I'll be there. There's two things. I want to answer this question in two ways because crowdsourcing is not a new concept. It goes back 300 years. Um, the first, uh, one of the first examples of crowdsourcing was the Oxford English Dictionary. Instead of hiring a bunch of linguists, uh, they put a call out to the, the, the English public and said, we're looking for definitions to be included in the first dictionary that codifies the English language. Submit your definitions of words that you use every day. And so the first dictionary was crowdsourced by the public. The first way to measure latitude on a ship was a crowdsourcing campaign by the British government, giving a reward to the public for the first person that can help uh, a ship measure latitude correctly on water. Wikipedia, another great source, that's all crowdsourced. There's no really paid employees except for the, the, the staffing component. And there's elements in there. People like the money competition, but there's other intrinsic things that people join these crowdsourcing projects for, which is a challenge, you know, as simple as like a crossword in the back of a newspaper, a crossword puzzle. Uh, people do that because it challenges them. But in crowdsourcing, there's also like being part of a group that's solving a mission. There's something very altruistic about that. And so that's one reason why a lot of these creatives get from us is that they're work- they're expanding their mind on projects. If they're working on like one of these parastatal brands that might not be the most creatively challenging, you know, working on a SCOM brand, for instance, might not challenge uh, a creative as much as they want. So this gives them a little bit of outlet, a little bit of uh, mental flexibility, mental challenging um, joining our projects. And the second answer is a lot, uh, a lot easier to answer, and that's just cold hard cash. So all of our all of our creatives are compensated on every single project. I'm thinking as you speak um, of a company like Twitter, who, which I believe really uh, their leadership needs to realize that I think their future is you know lies in some of the things that you said. If anything. They're the, well, easily, as far as news is concerned, or at least broadcasting, I feel. They should just follow a crowdsourcing model and try and make money that way instead of trying to sell ads or whatever. I don't know what you think about that. 
Yeah, I think um, there is one. Yeah, I think that's what they're trying to do with the promoted tweets is like these are conversation starters and they spark the fire and the Twitter community will will, um, turn it into, you know, a a bigger conversation. Shame, I'm throwing them under the bus here, but I'm sort of trying to, for myself, apply the principles of what you're saying um, to platforms I like and I use and I'm trying to see, you know, if I'm totally understanding the concept. Yeah, I think um, what their goal is is to let independent uh, players build their own models of crowdsourcing uh, of value on top of that. So if it's cause-related, they can allow cause-based organizations start campaigns on Twitter. So I don't think that they want to be the ones pushing the topic because um, that automatically maybe makes them less objective party, objective platform, and just letting micro-economies build on their supply. And that makes them more powerful as these little other, other vendors build businesses businesses on top of them. So I, I think that's probably their long-term play. Interesting. Great perspective. Look, um, if I forced you into a corner to, to tell me what what Spring Leap is, is it a tech firm? Are you a vibrant community? What box can I put you in? Do, do you guys like boxes at all? Are they useful? I'm sure you, you'd have to pick one, you know, to, do, to go to market to raise capital, you know, for, for expansion and that kind of thing. What box are you frequently putting or what box do you, have you guys chosen for, for the sake of um, uh, propriety? We'll still say we're a crowdsourcing firm. Um, I think we've pioneered that, whether that's t-shirts or access to um, creative minds in, in different countries. The the crowd mentality of like accessing on the ground professionals that are willing to supply insights to our clients is one of our, our value propositions. The the second one is a marketplace. You know, we are these are vetted creatives. We know every brand that they worked on, every category, all their design skills, what school they went to, what employers they worked for, what they're interested in. And so when a client says to us we're looking for people with energy background, brand background in Nigeria, we can make that match. So we're a marketplace of sorts. I think our future is going to be closer to a SaaS model, actually. Um, so less interaction between through us. I mean, it's it's going to be through our technology, but less of us matchmaking and more of clients um, self-serving. Um, so they're going to say, launching a product in Singapore and Malaysia, click a few buttons, click exactly what insights they're looking for, and the technology will take care of the rest. I think that's our future. But for now, that we want to be close and physically in person talking to our clients so we can... You know, we're still in customer development mode. We're still building these products. So we don't want technology to replace our direct connection to the clients just yet. And you personally, how much longer do you think, uh, without sort of rocking the boat over there at Spring Leap, do you think something like what you're doing here at Spring Leap will keep you interested before you sort of get itchy for something else? Or are you in a position where you can and do sort of apply your your mind and your energies to other things? Are are there other startups you're involved with? So we're just getting started at Spring Leap. I'll just clarify that. Um, There's so much to go, so much to build um, at Spring Leap that this is is my focus right now. So Spring Leap is dedicated to being part of a vibrant uh, startup ecosystem in South Africa. So any chance we get to mentor, speak to, work with um, startups, anytime we can apply our services at low cost to startups, we do that, uh, no questions asked. I have invested in a few startups personally, and I advise a few startups or even when before I moved to South Africa. So learning what other startups are doing always keeps me better at my job, my current job, um, even if it's in different industries. Learn, seeing how they're using technologies, seeing how they're overcoming struggles, seeing how they're building products more smartly, more efficiently, um, and getting them to market more quickly, that helps me in my job at Spring Leap as well. What are you reading right now? 
Uh, let's see. Uh, you have time to read? <laughs> I finished a couple months ago Creativity Inc. Uh, by by the former founder of Pixar Animation, which is how to foster, manage, uh, and encourage creative feedback in an organization. Um, he's using his experience in a very creative animation shop, but the lessons he's giving are very relevant for anyone, even in an organization that's trying to um, teach their team how to be comfortable with throwing out crazy ideas, big ideas, and teaching people how to evaluate and give feedback on those ideas without quashing the, the enthusiasm. I'm just starting a very more of a light reading book uh, by Dave Edgars called The Circle, which I think is a bit of a, a uppercut at Google's culture um it's it's kind of making fun of a little bit of the culture of like employer knows everything employer is just like ingrained in someone's life you know you go to sleep thinking about your employer you wake up thinking about your employer and there's no separation between work and life i think that's dave edgar's mission on this book but it's more of a bedtime reading that's interesting given how companies are installing pods into their into their offices and that kind of thing i I personally think it's ridiculous one last question for you do you have a question that you wish i'd asked and i didn't Wow, uh, that's a very, that's a mind flip, huh? Um, I think you would like to ask if I'd rather live in Johannesburg or Cape Town. Would you rather live in Johannesburg or Cape Town? Although the, the answer is pretty obvious, I think, to me. Uh, definitely Johannesburg. I think the energy here is just a little bit more raw, more powerful than what's in Cape Town. And people are on their toes in Joburg and on the heels in Cape Town. Oh, ooh, Cape Town's not going to like that at all. Look, I mean, I, I just, I study in Cape Town. Uh, shout out to Heldeburg College, uh, Dr. Maritu, amazing um, head of department there. But I, I don't know that I could pursue a career and in, in, build life in, in Cape Town. Certainly to visit and check out wine country, our, our grape juice brands made in, in, in Stellenbosch. And so, look, uh, sure, much love, but no hate. <laughs> this is the best place to be. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm just uh, I'm joking a little bit out there, but I'd, I'd still prefer to be in Johannesburg. That's awesome. Listen, uh, it's been Trevor Wolf, man, the MD of Spring Leap. The man uh, has, has given us an hour nearly of, of insights uh, into his career. Um, I love how he, he walked us through his graveyard experiences. Didn't dig anything up, though. Just pointed out where things were buried and taught us the lessons he's learned. And hopefully we can all avoid by, by listening to him. It's been a privilege and, and, and a lot of fun to speak to you. Stick around, man. Don't, don't leave Jobik for nothing, man. I don't care what they offer you in New York or, or, or back home or wherever. Just to keep it here. Yeah, you're, you're fun to have around and thank you so much for talking to us my absolute pleasure and I'll be around